The Start On Demand. On demand. A school in Carmen is in hot water after grade four and five boys were asked to show the waistbands of their underwear to the vice principal. Many parents are speaking out and calling for people to be fired, while many others are saying, just relax. Many of the antibiotics we take are growing resistant to the bugs they're designed to fight. And if we can't figure this out soon, we could be in serious trouble. Turns out a company right here in Winnipeg is working on a solution. We'll meet internationally renowned Winnipeg singer Fosia, who is debuting a new song on Thursday on the heels of two sold-out shows at West End Cultural Centre. And we'll tell you about an airplane that landed not only in the wrong airport, but in the wrong country. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, March 26th podcast for The Start. I will just quickly follow up on what I mentioned yesterday. I said it was going to be a horror show at the dentist, and it was, and I am ashamed to tell you that it has been eight years since I've been to the dentist. Did you know it was eight years, or did you just sort of reconcile that yesterday? I reconciled it yesterday when they, I knew it had been a while. Oh, you knew it was probably, if you had stopped to think about it, you would no, know. I thought because I thought it was maybe four years. Somehow but it was I eight. lost four That's, years. You lost four years, my goodness. If she says, are you still at such and such address? And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> and I, I just was so ashamed and embarrassed. I said, how long has it been since I've been here? Hang on, let me tell you. 2011. Oh boy. Oh my God. So, so what's the, the verdict? Jet, the year the, the Jets came back. <laughs> <laughs> the teeth are okay. There's still no cavities. I thought for sure as soon as she said that, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be full of cavities. The the dentist, Dr. Wong, was, he was, wasn't happy with me. He said, well, hopefully you don't wait another eight years. You had no cavities after eight years? Correct. And let's stop and think about this correlation. The last time he went, the Jets came back. Mm-hmm. Then you go this spring, if all goes well. We're sending you the dentist like 19 times a year. (laughs) I like it. I like it. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this could be the missing link. Valor FC. This is the missing link. Yes. Brett's teeth. Okay. Well, hey, there's a, there's a positive spin. I'm just happy no cavities. <laughs> I can't yeah, believe you had painful. no cavities after eight years. But he had to scale my teeth for like a half hour. What does that, what does that mean, mean exactly? That's, you know, like that little torture tool mm. where they scrape your teeth? Oh, yeah. Because they have to get in between uh, and get below the gum line. Did you have earbuds on at least listening to some... Van Halen or something while no, they were doing that? No. So you could hear them doing it oh, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Sure. Yeah. That sounds just awesome. But um, I, I just, I kept telling myself, I did this to myself. I did yes. this to myself. Yeah, you I can't just get mad at the dentist. No. And I, I just let him do his thing. And then when he was done, he said, okay, you're done. And I sat up and I said, is that the best you got? As I spat out <laughs> <laughs> blood. About the blood. Oh, so, gross. Don't be like me. Go to the dentist. I don't know. You're really like, you didn't have any cavities. Saved yourself some money. I mean. He's had, probably had benefits the whole time. Yep. So everybody in the in the group benefits plan thanks you <laughs> for not using yours. Keeps our rates down. Yeah, keeps our rates down. Probably allows us to, you know, get physio and massage therapy because, oh, look at this. We can think There's of a, a million lot of unused money, A lot of unused money out of Winnipeg. Um, <laughs> so it was all about looking good for you yesterday because at noon yesterday we went to get fitted for our tuxedos. Yes. 
at Aldo Formal Wear. Please say you got matching ones with no, no. frills. Please. No, no matchy wachy. Oh. No, no. I had high hopes for you two coming in no, like twins. We, we look like dumb damn and dumb good. Yeah, like dumb and dumber. That's really what I was going good. for. <laughs> no. What color are we talking? You'll have to come to the awards well, dinner with there. us. To, oh. I am coming to the awards dinner with How's you. How's your dress looking? No idea. No? Probably, a little, that, probably huh? a little tight as I lied about my size. Oh, so. boy. Well, you still got a few weeks time. left. It's on April 19th. I got time. It's called a juice fast. <laughs> the juice fast, a cleanse. <laughs> hey, if you want to see pictures, I put a couple up on the 680CJOB Instagram from our trip to Aldo Formal where uh, designer Ken Lozano took care of us. And uh, yeah, he made us look, look sharp. He's a sharp dressed man himself. I trust anything that guy says when it comes to fashion. And I stopped at Costco and I got an extra roll of that gigantic saran wrap. Mm -hmm. So if things don't work (laughs) out for me and my plans for the next few weeks. Tighten. Tighten up. Just get clinched in there nice and tight. It'll all be good. It'll all be good. It'd be like homemade Spanx for men. Correct. Got it. You got it. I like the sound of that. And again, make sure you cast your vote. WNLA.ca to vote for the start for radio show of the year. And then we'll see you on the 19th. We will be hosting the event at the Met. We're going to talk more about the situation in Carmen, as Jeff Braun was telling you in Global News at 6 o'clock. We'll get into that in a bit more at 6.15. And as well, we're going to talk as well about antibiotic resistance. Kyle Milroy sort of teed it up in What's Brewing from a conversation yesterday. Uh, But we've done stuff in this before, Mm -hmm. Greg, and I know this has particularly been on your radar because of your ties to St. Boniface Hospital Foundation, but this is not something that we can take lightly. No, the WHO estimates by 2050 we may, quote-unquote, run out of antibiotics or effective biotics uh, against bacterial infections. And if that happens... Uh, the one statistic I heard uh, not so long ago that we could have one person on this planet dying every three seconds from a bacterial infection. These superbugs are becoming more prominent. They are becoming more antibiotic resistance or resistant. And it's it's frightening when you dig down and you realize uh, something that we take for granted, have taken for granted for almost a century, is starting to lose its efficacy. And, and we it, have ourselves to blame in part, too, because right. we go to the doctor and everybody's looking for that quick cure all the time. My kid has an ear infection. Please fix it. I have a sore throat. Fix it. I don't want to just discover it's a virus. I just, I'm going to assume it's a bacterial infection every single time. I demand the medication. And now I'm doing it to myself. And we're going to introduce folks to a guy at 7.15 who, who's dying because he's now immune to all sorts of antibodies that aren't helping him. So it's not just 2050, it's today. There are people today who are struggling or, and or dying because they, they, they're resistant now to all the things that used to cure us. Yeah, well, my grandmother, who passed away uh, just over a week ago now, had double pneumonia. And she was about four days away from running her course of antibiotics before she passed. And that would have been it. They, there's like, we've run everything we can run for this. If we do it anymore, it's, it's not going to be effective. And the one thing about antibiotics that we sometimes forget is the fact that not only does it kill the bad bacteria that's making us ill, it also has the collateral damage of killing the healthy bacteria. So you have to take the 
medicine as prescribed. And the other thing that we don't do is when we're feeling better, we stop taking the medication and you have to take it through its entire run. There's a reason why the prescription runs for 10 or 12 or 14 days because it's designed not just to make you feel better, but to kill that bug. And if you leave any any residue of that bug in your body, it gives it the opportunity to replicate and to become immune to the antibiotic that you've taken. So it's a, it's a huge question, huge issue. Mackling McGarry and McNabb and Loren, controversy in Carmen. Yeah, there's some parents in Carmen who are looking for answers this morning and some actually looking for action after a vice principal of the elementary school there asked to see the underwear waistbands of grade four and five boys. Now, this request was done apparently in order to determine who was responsible for flushing a pair of underwear down a school toilet. But as Global's Kevin Hirschfeld explains, some parents believe the school's actions only serve to further embarrass and maybe even bully those involved. Parents received a letter late last week saying that grade four and five boys were asked to show the waistbands of their underwear in an attempt to figure out who was involved in an incident. Parents say that incident happened after a male student flushed their underwear down the toilet. Now, that was when the vice principal apparently went to the grade four and five boys and asked to see their underwear straps to see who was wearing underwear and who wasn't and to find out who did this. A letter was sent home, but only to parents in those grades, according to Rochelle Foster, who has kids in kindergarten and grade three at Carmen Elementary. She was upset that the entire school was not notified. What message did she send to the children that were embarrassed and exposed the way they were. Um, This kind of abuse needs to stop. The Prairie Rose School Division wouldn't go on camera today, but admitting in a statement the actions were wrong, the investigation will continue, and they will continue to review and revise administrative procedures that will provide the leaders with the necessary guidance and direction for completing sensitive investigations. Foster says the way the school handled it was completely wrong. A simple letter home stating to talk to your kids about what goes down a toilet and what doesn't could have been the answer, not to try and find the culprit of who did what. Now, the letter to the parents also says the students were spoken to by the principal and they were told what happened was not okay and they have the right to say no. Foster hopes that the vice principal is fired as a result of all this. They don't have the right to say no. They should have said no, but they're grade four and five, so they it's don't. It's the vice principal. Right. Uh, the, what we don't know is were, were, were the underwear in the toilet because someone had an accident, was trying to hide that accident, or was there a prank going on? Which doesn't mean the, the vice principal still should have asked to see the waistband. But what was the reason they were doing that in the first place because the reason why some parents are concerned they're like okay well someone had an accident that person's feeling embarrassed by what happened was trying to hide the evidence did we need to go to this length if it was a repeated prank that's going on still probably should not have asked for the waistband but you do have to get to the bottom if there's a bunch of kids chucking their underwear down the toilet because the boys are being silly boys or girls and and think it's funny. Well, it's vandalism at that point. If you ask me, it's not. It goes beyond a prank. Uh, as someone who's had to clean up after other people who put inappropriate things down toilets, uh, including on Christmas Eve one year, mm. and so I've been down that road. But this should not have been the first 
course of action. If this has been happening before, why aren't parents hearing about it beforehand? And and that's this is not the, the right way to go about it, especially in this day and age when we're empowering our kids to have more control over our bodies and over their bodies and who should be able to see what, say what, touch what, look at what. And uh, yeah, this this is not the, the first thing. This is not your first course of action. Well, I've had so many conversations with my own kids about who's allowed to you know, look at these parts. Nobody who's allowed to touch this area. Nobody, um, but you. Right? This is your body, and you have to have control over your body. And you, you, you try to pound that message into your kids' heads so that that when they do get asked for something inappropriate, they're empowered to say no. But then it's your vice principal, and you, and they have an authority there, and the whole class is being asked to do it. It's just a different. It's a different scenario, which is where my concern comes in. We want to talk about more about this incident this morning at the school in Carmen because it has many of you, our listeners, talking and weighing in about what you feel as parents or about educators in the school system. And it has many other parents also shaking their heads. And of course, this revolves around the actions of a vice principal who was apparently trying to get the bottom of just who in her in the class had flushed a pair of underwear down a school toilet. Now, it's not clear why the underwear was flushed, but according to a letter that was sent home last week, the Carmen vice principal asked the boys in this grade four and five class to then show the waistband of their underwear in order to prove who was or wasn't still wearing underwear, which would then apparently help this person determine who was responsible for flushing this underwear. In the letter, the school says the vice principal was not trying to be, quote, salacious nor exploitive, but Rochelle Foster, who has two younger girls in the school who weren't involved in this incident, says... The vice principal went too far. Uh, very unacceptable. It was not uh, handled properly. Um, uh, she's uh, supposed to be an authority, a professional eye to these kids. Um, what message did she send to these kids is what concerns me as a parent. My children, kindergarten, grade three. I mean, who say she wouldn't do this again or something of this manner? This is the school. This is the Carmen School within the Prairie Rose School Division. They wouldn't uh, speak to us uh, or, or go on camera, but they admitted the incident didn't follow, quote, respectful investigative methods. Now, the provincial minister of education has asked the division to investigate the incident further. The mom that we spoke to yesterday on the news with Richard and Julie believes the vice principal should definitely be disciplined. I think that I'm not overreacting. I think if your babysitter, your neighbor... A stranger would have asked your child to even show a part of their underwear. It would have been made a big deal. If it would have been the opposite sex in the matter of vice principal being a male and and female uh, children, what would have happened then? They can have their opinions in the matter. That is totally okay. I feel that it needs to be heard. Yeah, and you're weighing in uh, uh, divergent views on this big time. Adam writes, I truly believe the vice principal and Carmen did nothing wrong. I also feel the mother you just played on the radio is blowing this way over the top. As a father of two, I would have no issue if an incident like this was handled in the same matter at their school. I also remember this is how things were handled when I went to school. Paul says that's so wrong. I have a three-year-old little cousin. I drop him off to preschool three times a week. And if he came home and said that same thing happened to him, I would lose it. Sorry. Yeah, we got another text. Uh, somebody saying one parent said the abuse word. I just, I guess I get frustrated when people just use that word so nonchalantly. Uh, I understand each person's experience is different, but is this abuse? But maybe I'm just in a bad mood. So we appreciate the feedback at 204-780-6868. Certainly a controversial topic. Mm. I know that if a vice principal asked me to do something, I would, like, when I had got called into the principal's office. You did it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's their, they are the, the law when well, you're a kid. This is why we're talking to our kids more about people who are in positions of power. And just because they're in power doesn't mean they have the authority over your body. And that's the lesson that you keep trying to hammer home to your children. So I think this is why parents, if you are upset, you're thinking, well, hang on. I've been telling my kid for years to not listen to those kinds of requests. And then someone in a school system and in a position of authority makes it. On the other hand, you have parents saying, hey, was someone chucking the underwear down to like damage the toilet or as a prank? Or is this part of an ongoing problem? You have to get to the bottom of the problem because that's an expensive. If this was a prank, we don't know if it was a kid who had an accident. We don't really know those details. Either way, if there's if there's a pair of underwear in the toilet system, we can know that that's going to cost school and so they were just trying to figure out what's going on so there's those two sides there yeah if this has happened more than once then this is a really big issue and then i'm on the other side with the school in terms of like this is vandalism by these kids but if the parents hadn't been asked to cooperate and trying to help figure out what's going on here prior to this i, I think it's a step that a measure too far on behalf of the vice principal here we're getting all sorts of feedback on this at 204-780-6868. And we heard before Global News at 8.30 that the question of the day from yesterday afternoon, are parents who want the people involved in this fired overreacting? And overwhelmingly, you said yes. 78% said yes. It is an overreaction. 22% say no. And uh, the great Wazoo has texted us saying, in regards to the Carmen incident, let me tell you what happened to me in grade three or four. I was playing outside during recess in the spring, and I fell into a large puddle. Totally soaked my pants and underwear. Getting back to class, the teacher used a blanket to shield me from the class as I stripped off my wet clothes, and she wrapped the blanket around me. I had to wait in class while waiting for my mom to bring me dry clothes. That teacher would not get away with that today. It shows you how times change. Do you think a teacher, like, I guess that's, not something that could fly now. I don't think I'm, you'd I'm do that. I'm not sure. Now. It would sort of depend. I think you'd have to have another adult in the room or someone else to ensure that the that it had all been done on the up and up, so to speak. For, for sure, times have changed. But like, some, as someone else puts it, writing in today, put the shoe on the other foot. What if we walked into work and our boss asked his employees or her employees to show their underwear because of a prank or accident? Would you think that was appropriate? Other texter asking if this was female students, what would the reaction be? And this just came in the whole Carmen school underwear situation has me baffled. For the parents that think this vice principal acted inappropriately, you are part of the problem. Being asked to show the waistband of their underwear is no different than just seeing it under the pants waistline anyway. There was an issue with someone flushing their underwear, and if it was a prank, like they are saying, then consequences should be handed out. All these kids growing up and not being held accountable for their actions makes very irresponsible adults. I don't think any of us is suggesting that whoever was responsible for this uh, be found out, but we don't know is whether or not one of these individuals maybe had an accident in their in their pants and was trying to cover it up. I've been in Mexico and been in a situation where there's no toilet paper. I've made an executive decision to lose a pair of Tommy Hilfiger underwear. I didn't flush it down the toilet, but when you're a little kid, and once again, when you're younger. You sometimes do the wrong thing, but I agree that if this was simply a prank, 
it goes beyond a prank. It's vandalism because of the damage that it can do. But there's a different way. I don't think anybody's saying that if this is what happened in terms of a prank or vandalism, that you shouldn't, that crack you down shouldn't be cracked down upon or get punished for it. I don't think anybody's saying that. It's how you go about figuring out who's responsible that's in question here. I've gone back and forth myself because when I first heard it, my instinct was like, oh, don't overreact. It's not a big deal. It's just the waistband. That was my initial reaction. But then I go to think about what I, as a parent, have been instructing my kids to do when it comes to boundaries on their own body, right? And and if you've been telling them not to, not to, not to acquiesce to anyone asking you to show them anything underneath your clothing, then this isn't right. I remember in grade one. I had an accident, and I won't get into the details, but I remember, uh, I don't remember the teacher's name. It was at a Cole Central. Uh, it would have been around 1983, I guess. I don't remember her name. Uh, I don't remember much from that year, but I remember this, and because it, it haunted me forever. Uh, thankfully, it didn't become something that followed me, but I asked to go to the washroom, and she didn't let me go for whatever reason. I don't know why. I guess because I should have gone during lunch, and I didn't. And then I had to go, and uh, I tried to hold on, but I couldn't, and I had an accident. And uh, I remember, I still remember standing in the line in the library as we were getting ready to leave and looking over and seeing young Louis Norris, one of my classmates, looking at me, and he got that kind of look on his face like, ugh, something you, stinks. You, you smell, and, and the, the you is you. And then he pointed at me, and then everyone laughed at me. Great. And uh, that stuck with me, so had it. Had, the, had I been able to get to a washroom, I might have done the same thing. I might have just chucked them mm-hmm. into the toilet. How many years it. ago is this? We're talking 35 years ago. Yeah. And you still carry that around. And I had a similar incident in 45 years ago where I had had an accident and was was taking care of things. And somebody else from the school, someone else from my class happened to be in the bathroom at the same time and started kicking open the stall doors. Oh my God. And he caught me trying to take care of what I was trying to clean up. And, um, I, and can close my eyes and I am right there. So these sorts of things can be fairly traumatic for young people. We've got to keep that in mind as well, I think. So if it was an accident, then certainly we can understand what may have Correct. been going through the, the mind of this young person. But indeed, if it was a prank, then uh, the, the perpetrator needs to be found out whether or not this was the right way to do it remains the question. And we continue to get all sorts of feedback, many saying, it's just, you know, stop overreacting, give me a break, the kids need to learn some discipline. And others are saying it's way, it's outrageous, it's over the line. And... Uh, uh, that the the administrators are taking advantage of the students, you know, because the students, when the vice principal tells you to do something, mm-hmm. uh, you you do it. And again, they, nobody was asked to show their underwear. To be clear, it was the waistband, the yep. top elastic band of the underwear. And so people are saying, you know, make make sure you're saying that differentiation because it is a huge difference. But it's still something that, in theory, is under your clothes. It's also still the idea of innocent until proven guilty to a certain extent, right? You're proving your innocence on this. I remember someone stole my baseball glove in grade four. I left it on the playground and someone else picked it up. And I don't know if this was the right way for the vice principal to go about it, but he walked me through every classroom in the school to see Mm -hmm. if I could spot it in the other classrooms. And I did. Kid had it right on his desk. And I went out in the hallway and I said, it's in the room. It's in the third row, five desks back from the front. 
well, you know, obviously uh, there was no mystery as to how the mystery was solved. And I had it ended up having an issue with the kid mm. after school, right? Because I ratted him out for taking my ball glove. And so I think sometimes the intentions are good, but the way we go about them can be damaging unintentionally. And to circle back, Loren, to the text that you read about, what would you do if your boss told you? You'd tell your boss to take a hike. Right? Like in no way, shape, or form would I be doing that. As an adult? As an adult. No kidding. Right. So why is it, if it's kids being kids, that makes it better? I don't think so. Let us know what you think. Text us at 204-780-6868, or you can email us, mackling at cjob.com, mcnab at cjob.com, or brett at cjob.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 680-CJOB. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun is here, Kelly Moore, Jeff Forte. And what's the story here, guys, of this plane that landed not just in the wrong airport, but the wrong country? What happened? Where did it go? Greg? I don't know. Where did it go? Where you were reading it this morning, <laughs> Jeff? Where did where it go? They were supposed to go to Dusseldorf and they went to Edinburgh, Scotland instead. Oh. Great. So Germany, Yikes. they were supposed to land in yeah. Germany from England. and then cross the English Channel. Oh, so he didn't even cross the... They like started he, in England they and they went to England Scotland went instead north. of Germany. Yeah. And went north to Edinburgh. <laughs> How did that happen? They put the wrong flight plan in the plane. Oh, that makes me so yeah. nervous for a whole. That's a whole other conversation about <laughs> if if that's the sort of details they're missing. Well, you know, like what other details <laughs> oh are they missing? Oh my gosh, that's terrible. <laughs> so you have to wonder when this plane shows up at the wrong airport. What is the attitude? I would love to hear the back and forth and the radio transmission. Uh, you're not supposed to be here. Did they get off the plane and hear a bunch of Scottish accents and were just like, "Oh, this is not <laughs> this is not right. this is not German. This is weird." Yeah, you like you have to wonder at some point would an air traffic controller not tell them while they're in the air? Hey guys, uh, yeah, they that's must what have, I was thinking. Yeah. yeah, they must have known when they were coming down. The guy would have been like, "We weren't expecting you." Maybe we've made space for you. I wonder. Yeah, I guess it's a situation where once you start making your descent, maybe it, it's too dangerous uh, for other potential traffic in the air to to pull up. I don't know how that works, yeah. but uh, super embarrassing, <laughs> and that would be super frustrating to be a passenger. So we figured we'd have a conversation of, did you ever show up in the wrong spot? I'm laughing ever... at some of these quotes from one of the passengers where she realized something wasn't right when she saw mountains outside the plane <laughs> instead of the usual German industrial landscape. But I assumed we had taken some sort of do- detour. And then we looked at Google Maps and it showed us in Scotland. Like even the passengers were quicker on the uptake than each. Yeah. So have you any of you guys ever... Tried to go somewhere and then ended up somewhere else. Like maybe even say you got in the wrong bus, the wrong transit bus. I've I've, I've got a little bit of a story. Yeah. So I was probably like nineteen. Me and my uh, three friends we were going camping, and they punched into Google, not Google Maps, uh, just maps on the iPhone, and they punched in the place we're staying at, the not the campground but the park, and so we're following the map, and it's taking us on all these weird trails and. <laughs> And so I'm going, like, where the heck are we? I'm in the back seat, and I'm seeing trails that were on a bike trail, a skiing trail. And, like, the car's going, like, sideways sometimes because it's really steep. And I'm in the back going, whoa! And it was just... <laughs> Sorry, what were you doing again? Oh, my God, whoa! <laughs> like, I was having the time of my life, but I was scared. I, oh, but, yeah. So See, where were you? 
I, I can't remember uh, the exact park we were at, but yeah, we ended up on the biking trail, skiing trails. You were not on a road. We were not on a road. Oh, my word. We were in the car, and the, <laughs> we ended up stopping, and uh, when we got out of the car, we looked, and it was just a straight drop down. We're like, yeah, okay, we're turning around now. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. Again, was... you were following technology. You were like the pilot. It was you taking just... us to the middle of the park. It wasn't taking us to the campground. It was taking us to the middle of the provincial park. <laughs> I feel wow. like this took you a long dot. time to clue in. Right to the dot. Yeah, well, I was just having fun in the backseat. So. <laughs> I once uh, had to go to a wedding at Bridges Golf Course, mm. which is uh, southwest of the city, uh, sort of up Highway 2, just outside of, well, I guess it's in Starbuck. I don't know what happened, and apparently I wasn't the only person who had this happen to them, but when I punched it into Google Maps, it gave me an address and showed me which way to go, so I followed the directions, and I'm driving around where, like, I'm looking at the map, on Google, and I'm looking around. There, nowhere in sight is there a golf course. Well, I finally figured it out. Like it took me a bit further southwest to Sanford, uh, which was like from where I was. I think it ended up taking me over 45 minutes to get to Bridges because I had to take a bunch of dirt roads. Had no idea where I was, just in the middle of nowhere. And I got there, and my girlfriend at the time was mad at me. What are you doing? You're late. I don't. Google took me. I don't know where it took me. <laughs> and uh, then I started telling people, and they said, "Yeah, that happened to me too. I don't know where we were." The map apps aren't always don't always give you the best route. They give you a route, but maybe not the best one. So now, when I if I'm going somewhere that I don't know, I try to check the satellite overlay as well, or try to get some kind of an image to make sure that it's not taking me to the middle of nowhere, that it inf- there is a golf course there, that there is this building there, and that I'm not just kind of saying, well, the, the, the GPS told me to turn right, so I drove into the lake, like Michael Scott <laughs> yes, in the office. That's what I was thinking, or Dumb and Dumber, when they ended up in uh, Nebraska. Nebraska, as opposed yeah. to, where were they heading? Aspen. 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 Yeah. 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 Right. Right. yeah, my left just said it right. Something tells me Kelly Moore's never been lost. Well, I have a story here, but I'm going to throw... Uh, a couple of people I know very well under the bus as a result of it, but I just I couldn't believe they did it. Uh, very, it was that year that I had to cover the uh, Bombers game for Bob in Vancouver. So I flew into Regina to meet my wife, our, our daughter, and her two kids to continue on back to BC. I should have just stayed in Vancouver. But anyway, I get into Regina, and I get a phone call from my wife. We're going to be a little bit late. So they stopped at the Shell gas station in Brandon, and I don't know why, but for instead of turning right to get back onto the Trans-Canada Highway, they took a left and kept driving. (laughs) I always thought it was four lanes on the Trans-Canada Highway. Uh, Why are we at the border? (laughs) At the the American border? Oh, my gosh. That's funny. That's a detour. That's a long way out of the way. One of our our listeners just texted. I'm going to pay for sharing that story. Yeah, this one's pretty good. Uh, My elderly uncle was coming to visit us at at the lake at Buffalo, Minnesota. Ended up in Buffalo, New York. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, my aunt was navigating, so they just went the long way. I don't know if that was from Winnipeg to Buffalo, Minnesota, or and Winnipeg to Buffalo, New York instead. But instead of about six hours, would, would that be Jeff Braun? Like three days. Three-day drive instead. So, yeah, you'd be a little bit late. I once got lost in Hazard County, Kentucky. You seen the Dukes of Hazard? Yeah. There is an actual Hazard County, Kentucky. I thought I was going a certain way on a certain interstate 
realized I wanted to be on a different interstate and did the cross-country tour across rural Kentucky, and I feel lucky to be alive is all I'm going to say. Lucky in Kentucky. Mackley, McGarry, McNabb, Greg, antibiotic resistance is a growing, frightening problem. Sure is. Before the discovery of penicillin almost 100 years ago, doctors relied on on other treatments to fight deadly infections. Now, after almost a century of overusing antibiotics, many infections are resistant to drugs and doctors are again turning to treatments of the past to help patients who have no other recourse. As Jeff Semple reports, one Canadian main experimental treatment is saving lives. It's called a bacteriophage therapy, and it's used in a unique cocktail of viruses to target and neutralize harmful bacteria in a patient's body. A few years ago, Canadian epidemiologist Stephanie Strathdy and her husband Tom went on vacation to Egypt. Tom got very sick all of a sudden. Doctors discovered Tom had contracted a superbug, a bacterial infection that's resistant to antibiotics. Strathdy was told her husband wouldn't survive until she came across a century-old treatment called bacteriophage therapy. The patient is injected with a virus that feeds on the bacteria. There have been no clinical trials in North America, but U.S. officials allowed Tom to receive the therapy anyway, and it saved his life. It worked so quickly. I mean, here's a guy who was hours away, literally, from dying, and then he wakes up. By 2050, superbugs are expected to kill more people than cancer, and Strathy believes that phage therapy has the potential to save many of those lives. Jeff Semple, Global News, Toronto. Now, in Greek, bacteriophage literally translates to bacteria eater, and the microscopic organisms are found in all corners of the planet. Phage therapy was co-discovered in the early 1900s by French-Canadian microbiologist Félix de Harel and widely used at the turn of the 20th century. But it was quickly eclipsed by the discovery of antibiotics in the 1940s and eventually faded from Western medical research and application. So later this morning, we're going to introduce you to a Winnipeg company that's moving actually towards the animal testing phase of their own phage therapy model. And if it's successful, Greg, I think he said it could mean to lead to many, many jobs as well. So not only health benefit, but a potential economic boon to Winnipeg. So we'll bring you that story later in the show. But in the meantime, we want to tell you more about this Canadian named Jeff Summerhays. He could be the first Canadian to challenge Health Canada's position that phage therapy cannot be conducted in this country. He has lived with a milder form of cystic fibrosis into his mid-50s. The genetic disorder fills the lungs with a thick mucus that leads to life-threatening infections. Well, I've been dealing with this bacteria since I was 16 years old. Um, They don't quite know why I've uh, been able to survive despite having this bacteria when I had CF, but it it basically, it slowly ravaged my lungs over uh, 30 years. We managed to keep it under control with various different oral antibiotics, and a few times I had to go on IV therapy. And we were going through more and more uh, drugs that um, were becoming, the bacteria was becoming resistant to in a very short period of time. The, The more I have to be on antibiotics, the less they're likely to work. Um, 
and uh, the more damage it'll do to my other organs. An antibiotic-resistant superbug forced Jeff to have a double lung transplant last year, but the superbug survived. He wants to receive phage therapy at the hospital in Vancouver. He lives on Vancouver Island. Summer Hayes says in his case, the potential benefits outweigh the risks for trying phage therapy. In the situation I'm in, the difference is at least we tried. Uh, if we do go ahead with the phage therapy. Um, if we don't go ahead with phage therapy, we pretty much know the outcome, and the outcomes from that is, is not good. You know, I, I'm willing to take the risk because all the way along, you know, they told me I have a 50-50 chance of making it a year. So I don't think the risk is any higher or lower than 50-50 for um, trying a phage therapy if they develop it because it's been used successfully other times, just not in Canada. Now, Jeff's family is well-known in Canada's healthcare community. His parents, Donna and Douglas Summerhays, founded the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation of Canada and received the Order of Canada. Summerhays believes phage therapy is his only remaining option. It's the last choice that I have, that it's uh, there's nothing else available. We're running out of antibiotics. Generally, from the experiences that have been written about, if the phage doesn't work, it won't harm. So I don't really see much of a downside other than it wouldn't work. At this point, we're running out of antibiotics that are working. And um, there's not a lot of them coming down the pipe. And uh, once we get to through the antibiotics that we're on, we're uh, into antibiotics that do real damage to parts of the body. Macklin, McGarry, and McNabb, we've been talking this morning about how antibiotic resistance is a growing and frightening problem. Yeah, and before the discovery of penicillin, almost 100 years ago, doctors relied on other treatments to fight deadly infections. Now, after almost a century of overusing antibiotics, many infections are resistant to drugs, and doctors are again turning to treatments of the past to help patients who have no other recourse. And one Canadian-made treatment is saving lives. It's called bacteriophage therapy, and it uses a unique cocktail of viruses to target and neutralize harmful bacteria in a patient's body. St- Stephen Tarot is the CEO of, Dr. Stephen Tarot is the CEO of Citrophage Winnipeg Technologies, based right here in Winnipeg, and uh, Dr. Tarot, how critical is the changing ability of antibiotics to destroy bacteria? Oh, it's it's Huge, actually. That's uh, it's going to be one of the biggest problems that we have in our culture that we're going to be facing in the future. So if we look at antimicrobial resistance, because of the use of antibiotics and I'll say it, a little bit of the misuse, uh, again, we use antibiotics in our feed, we use it for our animals, we also use it to treat our patients. Because of all of those usages, our bacteria are actually becoming resistant to these types of antibiotics, which are leaving people at risk because they don't actually have any other useful solution to get rid of the bacterial problem. How much this has to do with uh, parents just overdoing it when it comes to, you know, your basic Advil or Tylenol? Or is it really more about going to the doctor all the time and then just the demand that is out there for a doctor to prescribe penicillin or amoxicillin or all the rest because parents really want to have that instant fix? I'm not going to say that the medical community hasn't sort of over-prescribed antibiotics. It's very well known that they have in the past. It is getting a lot better now because of the understanding of what 
over-prescription actually does. Uh, to jump back to your question, no, Advil and Tylenol don't have any effect on antimicrobial resistance at all. Um, those are just of uh, pain reliefs for us or anti-inflammatories for us. So when we're using antibiotics, generally you have to go to the hospital. Generally, when you go and you say, hey, I'm sick, the doctor would normally just prescribe antibiotics without actually testing whether or not you have a bacterial or a viral infection. And this is where we're getting a bit of the overuse of, uh, of antibiotics. Now, the other aspect of that is when you as a consumer of the antibiotics take it home, if you don't take your full cycle, the bacteria will start to get resistant to that antibiotic. And this is how uh, antimicrobial resistance occurs. So just to give you an example, so let's say we put a bacteria and we flood it with antibiotics. All of those bacteria will start to die off. But if you decrease the amount of antibiotics because you stop taking them not at the right time, those bacteria can sort of start to fight back through evolution and then develop something that will allow them to survive past that antibiotic uh, killing it. So then you end up with an organism that has resistance to that antibiotic. Dr. Stephen Terrio is the CEO of Cytophage Technologies, Inc. And Stephen, what is Cytophage working on regarding bacteriophage therapy and fighting back against antimicrobial resistance? Okay, so bacteriophages are viruses that are the most abundant life source on our planet. They're everywhere. In fact, if you looked at your arm with an electron microscope, you would find millions and millions and millions of them just sitting on your skin. They're absolutely everywhere. And what they are, are a natural defense mechanism or a natural killer of bacteria. So they only infect bacteria. They only kill bacteria. They do not hurt human cells, animal cells, or any other type of mammalian cell. And what we've done, so just to give you a bit of history of bacteriophages, in the early 1900s, they were being used to treat dysentery patients in World War I. And they were, again, very useful, uh, very functional, very efficient at getting rid of those bacterial problems. Then antibiotics came into the picture. And when antibiotics came up, they were a little bit more broad spectrum. They could be patented. Um, they were easy to find in culture. So bacteriophage sort of disappeared into the sunset. And when they, when they disappeared, it was simply because antibiotics were sort of the better tool at the time. Now with the advent of antibiotic resistance, bacteriophage is sort of coming back into the, the, the limelight. Now, look at bacteriophages. Naturophages work quite well. However, there are a lot of limiting steps to them. One of them is that resistance can occur to bacteriophage as well. If you are using bacteriophages, you would need one bacteriophage to kill off one bacteria. So you have to collect a lot of them and do a lot of research in order to get a good broad spectrum kind of panel of viruses or bacteriophages that could kill off these bacteria. So what we've done at Cytophage is I'm a, I'm a synthetic biologist. Um, and what we've done is we've created a platform, which is a genetic platform where we can interchange what we call binding domains or attachment proteins. This is how the virus or the bacteriophage attaches to the bacteria. And we've, we've basically developed a system where we can develop one virus that will wipe out many types of bacteria. The other thing that we've done is we've added sort of enzymatic functions within our bacteriophage themselves. 
and those enzymatic functions will break down the bacterial defenses uh, like biofilms. I'm sure everybody's heard of biofilms. They're causing problems now in many areas. Uh, we also have other enzymes that we can add that will break open bacteria in the general vicinity of that phage infection. So uh, what we've basically done at Cytophage is we've taken out or taken away all of the negative aspects of a, the bacteriophage and we've only kept the good parts and uh, we're being quite successful at it actually. We uh, are just currently moving into animals because this is an easier segue into humans for us. I'm sure you can understand a lot of red tape and uh, a lot of government regulations if we go into humans. So what we're doing is our proof of concept in animals. Uh, what we've done is we've developed a bacteriophage cocktail which now can be used in chicken barns and it's replacing the use of antibiotics. So now they no longer have to use antibiotics, they can just use our bacteriophage. How critical is it to get this to the real world application? You know, what kind of problem are we having with antibiotic resistance? What's the time frame before we're really going to need to have this solution available in hospitals and for doctors? Uh, we needed it about five years ago. I'm getting emails and phone calls from individual patients that have read about what we're doing and asking if we can help. And the reason they're calling is because they have a really bad infection, they're gonna lose their leg or they're gonna lose their life, and antibiotics will no longer work on their bacteria and the doctors have no other alternatives. So for us, it's very critical that we get this into the healthcare system as soon as possible. Um, and again, that's what we're kind of working at. We're, again, running through regulatory stuff with the government to ensure that as we're moving forward and the technology evolves, that we'll be ready to step in as soon as the government says we can. Fascinating stuff, Stephen. Thanks for taking time with us. How many people are doing this and how many people could be employed here just on the economic front, just real quick before we let you go here in Manitoba, if yeah. this comes to fruition? So right now we are a little lab, so we have 15 permanent staff. And this is sort of laboratory staff with a few executives of the company. If this blows up, we're looking at um, anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 people, especially if we do manufacturing here. Dr. Stephen Terrio, CEO of Cytophage Technologies, Inc. In studio with us right now, we have someone who is described as an 18-year-old Morocco-born force of nature from right here in Manitoba. She is an internationally known singer with a huge social media following, but she's also a full-time university student. She did two sold-out shows last Thursday and Friday at the West End Cultural Centre, and she has a brand new song debuting on Thursday. It's called Born Without a Heart, and her name is Fosia. You know, when 
I hear stuff like that, I I wonder how are human beings capable mm. of producing <coughs> such sound? My word. <laughs> thank you. Fosia is here in studio with us. Hello there, Fosia. Pleasure to meet you. Hello. Thank you for having me. Is it still when you hear your own music and your own voice on the radio? What goes through your mind even now? Sometimes it doesn't even click that it's me. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just like, yeah, that's a song I've heard lots of times. <laughs> <laughs> kind of bobbing along to it, right? Exactly, yeah. Your voice is a genuine instrument in its own right. My goodness. Thank you so marvelous. much. Just uh, spine tingling to, to hear you uh, navigate that song. How long have you been singing? When, when did you realize that you had a little bit of a voice? I've been singing ever since I could, but I feel like when I realized I could do this for reals, probably when I was... 13, 14 years old, but I started performing when I was eight, and I always did it just for fun, but then I saw the reaction that people had and how much of an impact I could have on people, and I just wanted to help as many people as I could, so when I was 14, I started, I decided that I wanted to release music and not just do covers. Well, it's not just about the voice from you. From everything I've read, it's about also just the stories that you wish to tell through yeah. your music, and you're talking about connecting with people. Is that what you like to hear more than anything? Not just, you know, oh, wow, great voice but that that meant something to me, that that song meant something. Yeah, for sure. When people tell me that my music helped them through a tough time, I feel like I've achieved my goal. Cause, or, even just, or even if they listen to my music and they're like, yeah, we play that just to have fun and just to smile. Just as long as I'm having an impact on someone and brightening up someone's day, I feel, I feel great. Now, in terms of your social media, and I just want to give you some context here, okay? Now, I am on Instagram. I like it. I have 711 followers. Fosia here, also from Winnipeg, uh, and Carmen as well, uh, has over 130,000 followers, 98,000 subscribers on YouTube. And how does one achieve that kind of a following when you're from Winnipeg? I would just say being very engaged on social media and posting lots of content and listening to your fans and seeing what they want to see and um, just not, you know, not taking long periods of time without engaging with your fans because, you know, that's, that's who's watching and those are the people that are waiting for something. So giving people what they want and just being yourself, I feel like lots of people connect with that as well. So you have a, more than 100,000 followers, is that right? 130,000 on Instagram. Your concert sold out in hours at the West End <laughs> Cultural Center last week, but there's still no record. So can we only imagine where things could go? Like, Have we released an album? No, <laughs> but I've released a few singles so far and I can't wait till the day I release an album because so many people have asked me, do you have an album out? And people have been asking me for years now and I feel so bad that I keep saying no, but one day, one day it, soon. It seems to be working for you. Is that, on the, is that on the agenda? Is that the ultimate goal here for you or does it work for you just to do the singles and have it come out um, sporadically like that? For now, I think the singles are working out pretty well. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I guess as soon as, you know, everything seems right and everything aligns, we'll have an album. So I'm going to show my age here. I know that Ed Belfour, the former National Hockey League goaltender, is from Carmen. Yeah. But how do you go from Carmen to making an, uh, making a song with, is it David Guetta? Yeah. How do you say his last name? Guetta. Guetta? Yeah. See, I didn't even know. <laughs> this guy's one of the top, right? He's a, like a DJ, right? Yeah, top DJs in the world, yeah. So how, how, how did you meet? So unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him because when I was down in L.A., he was he was in Ibiza, I believe. 
And、um, why wouldn't he be in Ibiza? <laughs> <laughs> so he was away all summer while I was in LA, unfortunately. But、um, there were people on my label that work with him as well. And they really liked my voice, so they showed it to him. And he really believed in my project. And so he let me try out for one of the songs on his album. And I got it, which was a huge honor. Yeah, that was huge when I first learned that and saw that it was Fozia pairing with David Guetta. Because that album, like, what, were, what are some of the other artists he worked with on、There's、that album? There's Justin Bieber,、mm. Sia,、uh, BB Rexa, just crazy huge artists on the album. Only、so. the top talent on the planet, <laughs> clearly, right? It was. A huge honor. Because, like you said, I'm from Carmen, Manitoba, and for him to put that trust in me was. Was just insane. So, did people from around the world start reaching out to you after hearing the, the work that you did with David Guetta? Lots of people, yeah. Lots of people from, you know, any like, places on the planet that I wouldn't even think of would reach out to me on Instagram and be like, I heard your song with David Guetta and it was great. And it just made me realize how big the world is and how many people are listening, which was, I don't know, it gave me chills. You have, you, you have a modesty about you. Yeah. <laughs> and、uh, I'm wondering when you, you know, when your star is rising as yours is, and you're working with international superstars like David Guetta, and your name is on an album with Justin Bieber and the other artists that you mentioned, how do you stay Manitoba, <laughs> so to speak? Because you still have that friendly Manitoba, just, oh, shucks, kind of <laughs> attitude about you. I would say the people surrounding me are my family, my team, my friends. They're very supportive, but they keep me very grounded. And,、um, you know, at the end of the day, we're all just people trying to do what we love. And so I feel like getting a big head or, you know, thinking you're above someone just because you're doing something, I don't know, something else, it just doesn't make sense. So I feel very lucky and blessed to be doing what I'm doing and having people supporting me. And I don't know. I, I'm really grateful. Well, you mentioned being in LA last summer, but you, it is important you to not just surround yourself by your family and friends that will speak honestly, honestly to you, I'm guessing, but also just to stay in Manitoba. Has that been part of the goal? Like, why, Some people might say, with this kind of success, why not go to some of the bigger cities? Yes, of course.、Um, one of the main reasons is because I'm going to school here. And I love being close to my family as well, because what lots of people don't realize is that plays a huge role in what I'm doing. And having my, my My sisters and my parents、um, there and helping me out behind the scenes all the time is something that really pushes me forward, which lots of people don't know about because you know you only see what's on、mm. social media. But behind a video or behind a picture, there are, there's my mom helping me and my dad making sure everything's in place, and my team here in Manitoba being like, Do you need anything? And you know, Having that team here, I would feel kind of isolated if I was in a big city alone.、Mm. Plus,、yeah. you have a whole other part of your life you mentioned there、yeah. that、uh, we were talking about. She's obviously on air. She's, she's in school. Obviously, studying music, right? <laughs> right. Well, that was our guess, but no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm in engineering. <laughs> I'm just going to let that sink in for everybody for a bit because A, you haven't moved to another city to, to work on your singing. You are still working on your singing, but you also, so you would like to be a full time engineer at some point? Um, I'm not quite sure. I'd love to get my engineering degree and I want to continue my 
career in music and somehow merge the two. I'm not exactly sure how, but I have, I don't know, I have big plans in my mind, but we'll see. <laughs> could the computer engineering somehow, could you pair that with music in terms of a production? Yes, or like a, music how, software. How you, you never know, like just, they're both very creative and I feel like they work really well hand in hand. There's a lot of people that say that music isn't real anymore. It's all digitized with all the different technology that's available. Uh, what do you say to that? You have, a, you have an amazing voice. Thank you so much. I feel like everything is becoming very digital, but at the same time, it's music has just taken has just evolved I feel there's still people playing instruments and there are bands and that's a really great and amazing form of music but there's so much passion and creativity that goes into digital music as well with a MIDI keyboard and programs and you're still using a lot of creativity it's just not as um, I guess instrumental I would say you're but still it's using still, your voice which is your instrument yeah, though. your voice and your mind and even instruments when that you plug into a computer but now you can tweak them with software and do different and you know create different noises and sounds and it's available to everyone I mean yeah. my, my kids have the, the little guitar or whatever app on their phone and they can do the the, the garage band I think is the app that they work mm -hmm. and they're creating music and it's actually pretty good. Yeah, that's how we I started. Ne we never had that that option when we were kids. If you didn't have an instrument, you had to bang on pots and pans. Yeah, for sure. I started <laughs> playing instruments when I was super young. And then when I was nine, my mom bought a laptop and I totally stole it from her and started producing on there. So I was when you were nine. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I was lucky enough to be able to do both. And doing both I realize they're equally as important because you know they're both very creative processes and it's just they're both fun mm. I mean, as long as you're I'm just glad fun. you borrowed the laptop and not the spaghetti pot like Greg did back <laughs> when he was eight or nine I think that makes a big difference for all of us her name is Fozia that's spelled F-A-O-U-Z-I-A because a couple of our listeners are asking how do, she sounds great how do you spell her name <laughs> and the new song once again it is called Born Without a Heart it debuts on Thursday. Make sure you follow her on social media. She's all over it. Instagram, YouTube. She's there. Fozia. She is from Carmen. Hails now in, from Winnipeg. She's from born in Morocco and she has an insane voice and you have not heard the last of her. Trust us. Fozia, thank you for stopping by. We thank appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Right now, we want to talk about something that is happening in our community this evening. The headline here, Local Musicians Headline Rally in support of Bill C-262. And we have a couple of guests in studio with us. We have Leah Gazan, which I'm finally saying right for the first time, I think, <laughs> uh, who's been a big advocate on this issue. And of course, Steve Bell, who she's, uh, Bell, yep. uh, who's helped participating in the show tonight. But I want to start off with the basics. Leah, what, what is Bill 262? Because I think sometimes when we say mm. bills, people eyes glaze over and mm. think, oh, I don't know, does this impact me? So what are we talking about well, here? Well, it's the uh, Indigenous Human Rights Act. And it's just basically the purpose of the bill is to ensure that Canadian laws are... Um, or a Canadian law is uh, in sync with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which is a minimum human rights document. It's the minimum human right that any person, Indigenous or not, needs to have joy. So what's the difference between what we have now and what you'd like to see Canada adopt that's included in this United Nations Act? Well, I think more and more Canadians are recognizing that uh, Indigenous people do not enjoy human rights in this country on a number of fronts. Things like 
access to clean drinking mm-hmm. water, uh, schools, um, even things like food security, uh, uh, ability to uh, practice one's language as a result of, of history. Uh, we need to change that in this country. We need to make sure as a country going forward that all decisions support the human rights of every person living in Canada right now. Why is there this discrepancy? Why does it continue, the discrepancy between Indigenous peoples in our country and what they have access to? And you mentioned right off the top, Leah, clean drinking water and, and access to such. Uh, why is it becoming... A dream for some First Nations and and other communities of the North uh, that are predominantly Indigenous to have clean drinking water and access to things that you and I, uh, if you live in Winnipeg, uh, take for granted. Well, I think uh, Canadians need to recognize that First Nations communities still fall under what is called the Indian Act. Mm. So a lot of the systems that are governed are provincially, things like health, education, uh, we fall under uh, the federal uh, system and are uh, governed under the Indian Act, which is a document that actually violates uh, human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> many people were surprised with Cindy Blackstock, who's one of my heroes, and the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that ruled with this current liberal government that's now on its seventh non-compliance order to immediately stop racially discriminating against uh, First Nations children living on reserve by giving them equal funding to kids living off reserve. I think more and more uh, Canadians are learning about this. I have never met a Canadian that feels comfortable with kids having their human rights violated. And uh, we need to change things, and this bill will do that. We've uh, spoken and discussed the idea that there's a discrepancy uh, in something so basic as what the federal government mm-hmm. provides as a, a basic amount per pupil for education versus what the province provides a, a public school mm-hmm. in Winnipeg yes. or Brandon mm-hmm. or Dauphin it's, for school. It, it's a dramatic difference. It, it's over 30%, is it not, yeah. the difference? It, it's actually 20 to 40% according to the findings of the First Nations uh, uh, Child and Family Caring Society with uh, Cindy Blackstock. And the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling said, you guys have to pay an equal amount. This government, seven non-compliance orders, this government even breaks the law uh, against or or, uh, violates Indigenous human rights, even when their own systems, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal tells them they have to do better. And so this bill will help support those kind of basic human rights, even for little kids uh, living on First Nations yeah. Reserve uh, in this country right now. So the bill is Bill two C-262. It's been passed by the House of Commons. It's going for its third reading in the Senate this summer. It's still a private member's bill, so there's some issues as to whether or not it would have to be fully enacted. But your, your point with this rally tonight is to get Canadians, more Canadians on board with the idea of adopting this United Nations Act. What, what has you involved, Steve? Why are you... Stepping up to the plate. Uh, well, for this. I, I just sort of feel. I mean, when I when I read the the, the declaration, I was shocked. It seemed almost infantile. Like, really? Like, like, don't don't we assume that everybody has these mm-hmm. rights? Like, I was almost disappointed with how basic it is. And then you start look, poking around, and you realize that children don't have equal funding. It's it's, it's staggering um, that, that the racism that is just sort of embedded into our, our our politics and our culture. It's it's the air we breathe. It's it's the water we drink. It's just it's everywhere. So part of this bill is about committing to stopping harm. 
so that healing can happen. And for me, that's, I'm a Canadian, I'm, I'm a voting Canadian. And I, I, I care about these kids and I don't want my country doing this to these children, right? So my, my energy um, is from that as a grandfather, um, as a foster father with foster grandkids who are affected by this. Um, uh, so m- mine kind of, and my wife's go, go fairly deep. Um, tonight's um, rally is just a public um, information to get uh, rally people so we can show pictures to the Senate. We care. Um, this is the time because there's some pushback. Well, where do you think we are in the conversation on reconciliation? Because it's been highlighted over and over again. We had the whole Truth and Reconciliation Commission come out and say it's such a massive issue for Canadians to start to care about so that we can move forward. Yeah. But in doing in moving forward, people need to recognize the past. And I'm not sure where we are as a public. My kids are learning so much in school now mm-hmm. that, that I never did. But my adult friends and I still have questions that we don't have the answers to because we weren't taught any of this is yeah, part of our we history. Don't, we don't read much about it. We, we've done a lot of truth-telling, but not, not a lot of listening, and it's certainly not a lot of reconciliation mm. part yet. I would, what would you think, Leah? Well, I think, you know, there's no reconciliation in the absence of justice. You know, I think relationships are important, but relationships have to include things like toilets, clean drinking water, access to school. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to have a, a good relationship when it's been so normalized, the violation of Indigenous human rights in this country. And I think more and more people are jumping on board. I think this bill is demonstrative of that in terms of people, uh, non-Indigenous people from across this country, uh, joining forces to send a clear message to government that uh, we are not okay, that we live in a country where, like I said before, little kids, uh, Indigenous uh, women and girls, we've we've seen a crisis of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls in this country. Uh, I know so many people just that just don't feel okay about it. Uh, and I think the fact that a private member's bill, um, you know, getting as far as it has uh, through government mm. Um, I think things are really positive, but it's time for the government to stop fooling around and uh, make sure this passes. But yeah, whenever we talk about Indigenous issues, we inevitably get pushback, whether it's here on this radio station or just out in the street. You, you, when the topic comes up, there are always people who just instinctively want to push back. Are you seeing that an improvement in that, where there's less pushback, where people are showing more understanding, or are we, are we getting anywhere with that? Well, I mean, I I taught at the University of Winnipeg for many years. I taught a course called Aboriginal Education. And I would say that, you know, this is just one example. When I started teaching the course, I would ask students, who's heard about residential school? And I have maybe three Mm -hmm. hands raised. Well, last year, I would say about 85% of my students uh, learned about a residential school. I think that we have a long way to go to, to really look after uh, some of the uh, stereotypes and prejudice and certainly, um, you know, systemic uh, issues that kind of perpetuate a divide in this country. But I think it's improving. And I, I've always said how weird that we've lived on this lands for a long time, yet very often we don't even know anything about each other, mm-hmm. you know. So I think as more and more people learn the story, uh, the support has been tremendous, With certainly with this bill, uh, certainly around uh, things like environment. I think it's been a joining force as much as we see in Canada being a div- divisive force. I think there's many things and many goals that we share together. Uh, so I think it really is improving. I feel very hopeful, actually. There are some people, we're getting it right now, that will suggest that uh, lack of access to clean drinking water, toilets, and other 
uh, first world rights that that should be for everyone in Canada has to do with, and I'm going to quote here, the remote location Indigenous Canadians choose to live. Well, I would disagree. I figure if they can uh, build a pipeline from here to Timbuktu, certainly if there was political will, they could build a pipeline to provide all people with clean drinking water in a country as rich as this. I think it's appalling. Uh, Certainly that's been recognized by the United Nations. Um, That called uh, the conditions in some of the communities likened to developing countries. I think that's I think that's appalling. I think that's an embarrassment for this country. And I think when somebody's human rights is violated, Indigenous or not, we all have to be concerned about it because who's going to be impacted uh, next? We just have to look at what's going on in the States with Trump uh, right now and, and some of the populations under attack to say mm-hmm. anytime you see human rights uh, as an issue, uh, we need to speak out against that. That should be a concern for all Canadians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rally tonight is for Bill 262, which would require Canada to ensure its laws are in harmony with harmony with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Leah Gazan, is a, are you former? Are you, you are you finished at the U of W now? Well, I'm cur- currently journey? on leave, right. but I am running for nomination in Winnipeg Centre uh, for the with the NDP for the upcoming federal election. Um, so, if successful, uh, I will be running in the next election in Winnipeg Centre. So, this bill's clearly important to you. And just before we let you go, Steve, you're playing tonight too. It's not just no, a, you're, I'm not. You're not. I'm, I'm hosting. Oh, I've got an I injury in my hand. I see the cast on there Fred now. Fred Penner, though, is going to be there, Fred which Penner I'm just so delighted about. And Coco Ray Stevenson, who's um, if if you haven't heard him sing, he's a um, um, traditional Indigenous singer. He's magnificent. Um, as a singer, I just I'm a I'm a fan. He's a he's great. So, so well, serious things to to get on the agenda tonight but yeah, some lighthearted too. we have too. really great panelists it'll be good all right steve bell and leah gazan joining us live in studio once again this is happening tonight at seven o'clock at canadian mennonite university at 2299 grant avenue thank you so much okay. for joining thank us you. thank you very okay. much for having us hey thanks for listening to the start podcast we are available on apple podcast google podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts subscribe now and never miss an episode and if you like what you hear rate the show tell us what you think and hey even tell a friend about the podcast be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram greg is at gmacwpg that's g-m-a-c-k-w-p-g i am at brett mcgarry b-r-e-t-t-m-e-g-a-r-r-y and loren on twitter is at mcnab on global and on instagram at mcnab on c-j-o-b talk soon